Hey guys, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is David Dorner, and I am the teaching pastor here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it is so good to be with you. Our mission in this world is to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus for a lifetime or if your journey's just begun, we hope that this message will speak powerfully to your heart, that it will reveal something that God desires to cultivate in your life, and that you'll be drawn to the person of Jesus as a result. We hope these next few moments encourage you, challenge you, and inspire you to be who God has created you to be. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Good to be back with you again here in the room. And as well, if you're joining us online, it's great to have you joining in with us. Uh, My family and I actually were watching online the last few weeks as I've been on a uh, kind of some family vacation as well as a study break, a chance to kind of study and get ahead and what we're going to be talking about in sermons and teachings over the next year or so. And uh, on the very last uh, night of my vacation, my oldest son, Alan, got engaged, which is just a really awesome thing. Yeah, so... We're really excited for Alan and Danielle and and just the future that God has for them together. Uh, And they actually met here at a youth group event at Frontline. So uh, students, I'm not saying that that's the reason you should go to NowGen, but I mean, I'm just saying it couldn't hurt. You never know what what could uh, happen from that. And so uh, I don't know if some of you parents are in that stage of life where you have either kids who are uh, getting married or they are married or whatever. It just feels like a whole new chapter uh, of our lives. It just feels like a whole, whole new uh, page has turned. And so um, anyway, uh, it's been a very eventful few weeks for me. And I'm excited to be back with you as we are. Like Blake uh, just mentioned, we're working through Summer in the Psalms. We've been looking every week at a different psalm and just kind of looking at the hope that the psalms offer us. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm uh, 46. Psalm 46 is, is what we're looking at today. So if you want to find that uh, on your Bible app or, if, or uh, turn to there. Um, We're going to look at that. Uh, Research in the field of bioacoustics has revealed something, that we are actually surrounded all the time by millions and millions of ultrasonic sounds. Uh, Songs all the time are, are all around us. Ultrasonic meaning we can't hear them with our human ears. And so uh, this whole field known as bioacoustics, what they're doing is they're putting these super sensitive sound instruments, they look like this, in forests and out in various places in nature to actually record and pick up all these sounds. Uh, Now, it gets super nerdy, so I'm not going to take you too far down this path, but but basically what we're discovering is that if something is alive, it's making noise. If something is living in our world, it is singing a song. There's a, a vibration of some kind that's coming off of it. What we've even discovered is that even earthworms make these faint little staccato sounds, Think about that the next time you're putting one on the end of a fish hook. It's screaming. You just can't hear it. But they make these little sounds. So everything in creation is actually making noise. It's singing. And when you look at Scripture, this lines up with what we see in the Bible. Jesus said, if people don't praise me, even the rocks will cry out and praise to me. Paul said in Romans, all of creation is groaning, waiting for the glory of God to be revealed. King David says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
So there's this idea that all of creation is worshiping God. All of creation is making noise and singing its praise to God. And so when we open our mouths, when we play instruments, uh, like we just experienced as Carol Ann just led us, when we sing a song of praise or worship to God, what we're doing is we're just joining in. That's all we're doing. We're just joining in with the sound of praise that's already happening, that is taking place with all of creation all around us all the time. And that is what makes Psalm 46 so weird. It's weird. I'm here to tell you. It actually kind of doesn't make sense when you first encounter it. It's written by the sons of Korah, and it's one of the psalms of praise. In other words, this is a psalm that was written in order to teach us how to praise God. How do we join our voice with the rest of creation? How do we make noise with everything else? It's supposed to teach us. How do we adequately praise God? And here's what's so weird about it. It starts out, it begins to talk about God's greatness and his goodness and who he is to us, who he is to his people. And it just builds and it builds and it builds. It talks about his glory. It's like a train. It just keeps building momentum. And at the highest point of the psalm, the crescendo, the big moment of the psalm, we're commanded by God to be completely still and completely silent. To know who God is but to not speak, to not make a sound, and to just be completely still. It's, it's kind of anticlimactic. And so I want to look at this psalm together. I want to look at Psalm 46, and I'm just going to ask uh, the question, why is being still so hard for us? In an American westernized society, why is being still so hard for us to do, and why does God want it from us? Why is it something that he actually asks? The, the highest form of praise we could offer God is to be still and silent and know that he is God. If you get this, if you can understand this, it will transform your relationship with God. So let's, let's dig in. This is Psalm 46 in its entirety. I just want to read it with you. It says this, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's Psalm 46. It builds up and builds up and builds up to this beautiful moment of be still and know that I am God. So let's talk for a moment. Why does God want this from us? Why does God want stillness from us? 
Uh, if you, you notice in this psalm, it, it speaks to the moment that we're in. It speaks to a truth that is true all the time. It, be, it opens up. It says, God is our refuge and our strength. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble. That was true at the time when uh, the sons of Korah wrote this. That's true today, and that will be true in the future. That's one of those things that's always true. But if you've been joining us, Throughout this series, A Summer in the Psalms, I hope that you're starting to pick up on the fact that as we've looked at many of these psalms, what we've discovered is that the psalms don't just point to the moment that they were written for, they point to something greater. So many of the psalms point to something bigger and something greater, and that's the case with this psalm. It's not just talking about the moment that it's written in. This psalm is actually pointing toward this future hope that we have as believers because of Jesus Christ. It's pointing to the ultimate fulfillment of the gospel. It's a song of praise. It's supposed to be teaching us how to praise God for the new heaven and the new earth that will come one day because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and his fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, everything in the Bible. There's many things I can look at. I'm just going to give you a couple clues that are in the text that help us understand that. So it speaks of the future. A couple things. First of all, it talks about the city of God in verses 4 and 5. It says, there is a river that makes glad the city of God. The people of the Old Testament were looking forward to the city of God. They, they understood that the city of God was going to be this, this new Jerusalem, this holy city. Ezekiel 47 and the Old Testament talks about that. It's going to be this place where God and people are once again reunited. Just like in the Garden of Eden, the entire Bible starts in a garden where God and man have communion with one another. And the story of the Bible ends in Revelation 22 in a city where God and people are once again reunited. And so the city of God, Revelation 22 talks about it as the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride for her bridegroom. It's this beautiful picture of restored relationship with God that we will have someday. The city of God, and it also talks about wars ceasing, verse 9. Well, there, there hasn't been a point in human history yet where there hasn't been some war somewhere that isn't going on. But what it talks about is when we look forward to the eternal kingdom, there will be no other kingdoms. Wars will cease because uh, God's eternal kingdom will be the only kingdom left. So there will be no more fighting, no more division, and that's the picture. Isaiah 2 talks about that in the Old Testament, looking forward to the eternal kingdom of God. So this psalm is referencing what's going to come. It's referencing the future that we have as believers. Now, why is that important to understand about this psalm? Why do we care? It's a guy named Roger Nisbet. He's a secular writer, actually, not, not a Christian writer. He wrote this book, a very famous book, called The History of the Idea of Progress, and in this book, what he talks about is that if you look at all ancient people, all ancient people saw history as cyclical. It was a cycle. And in other words, what's happening right now has been before, and what's happening right now will happen again. So that's how ancient people understood time. It's how they understood history. So, so things aren't getting better. Things aren't progressing. We're not moving toward anything. We're just kind of going in a circle. Everything's, everything's a cycle. Everything just repeats itself. That's what's happening. And what Roger Nisbet says in his book, the, idea, the History of the Idea of Progress, he says that this idea that modern people have, that history is going somewhere, that we're progressing towards something, we're progressing some, towards some sort of culmination of history and time, that idea actually came from the Bible, it came from God's people and the, the Holy Scriptures of the Bible. 
That idea did not exist in human history before the Bible came along. It's a secular writer who noticed this and pointed this out. That was the turning point. So now all people in modern times, we look, we look at history as it's, a, it's like a timeline. There's a progression. We're going somewhere. But what's it, what's it all building to? Where are we heading? Uh, for some of us, there's dread about the future. There's fear. Man, things seem to be getting worse. Our planet is falling apart. Human beings are more and more uh, at war with one another. But um, what we believe is, what Christians believe is that history is heading toward a resolution. That what we're experiencing, what we're seeing in our world, is all part of, you know, pain that's going to come as things move toward an ultimate resolution. And what the Bible talks about is this resolution is going to be Jesus' return. Jesus is going to come back. His eternal kingdom is going to be set up here on this earth. And so his kingdom will be the only kingdom. There's one uh, writer in the New Testament that refers to it as a reconciliation of all things. Isn't that beautiful? I love that language. I've always loved that phrase. It's a reconciliation of all things. It's a new heaven and a new earth. It's uh, war ceasing. It's all, uh, an end to all death, all pain, all mourning, all crying, all suffering, all war. And it's everything being made new. That's the future that we look forward to. And, and if, you, if you're a believer, if you have made Jesus the Lord of your life, if by faith you've entrusted your future to him, you and I, as believers, are going to get to see that. We're going to get to experience that. We're going to get to actually be a part of that moment that Psalm 46 is pointing toward and talking about. So what Psalm 46 actually insists is that in order to worship, I don't actually need a better explanation of today. What I need is a better hope for my tomorrow. In order to actually worship God, and that's what Psalm 46 is about. It's supposed to be teaching us how to worship. What I actually need is not a better explanation of what's happening today in my life or in my world today. What I actually need is a better hope for my tomorrow. You, you don't get it. In order to worship today, I don't need a better explanation of the cancer that's inside of me and the type it is and what it is and what the prognosis is. In order to worship, what I actually need is a better vision of where my eternal life is going to be forever. In order to worship, I don't need a better grasp of the political landscape of today and what might happen, what might not happen. What I actually need in order to worship is a better grasp of the heavenly landscape of tomorrow. Of forever. And I have to point my life and I have to align my life in that direction. That's what worship is. Here's why I tell you that. Because it's actually only Christians that can do what Psalm 46 is asking us to do. It's only a Christian who can be still and know that he's God. If you do not have Jesus at the center of your life, if you don't have that hope for where your life is heading and where the future is heading, you can't be still. You can't be still and know that he's God. You can't do it. All you're left with is anxiety and fear and desperation, control. So anxiety isn't still. Fear doesn't have any knowing. It's just panic. Desperation doesn't point you in any direction. 
controlling other people, controlling your circumstances, trying to control the outcomes of everything, that's not being still and knowing. Did you see what this psalm is? This psalm is actually an invitation into the peace that we can have only through the person of Jesus. It's only in him that we can actually do what Psalm 46 says to do. You can't be still at all in your life and know that he's God and rest in that assurance unless you know Jesus. And this psalm was pointing us in that direction. But here's the thing. I know a lot of Christians who aren't being still and knowing that he's God. Do you know some Christians like that right now? Uh, maybe some are in this room. I won't make anybody raise hands. I've been a Christian like that for sure at different times. So the question is, well, how do we, how do we live this? How do we, how, what does it mean to be still and know that he's God? It's interesting, that word still is the Hebrew word rapah. And rapah actually means uh, to sink down, to relax, to, to let yourself drop. So if you were on the 4th of July, if you were out on a floaty in the water, that feeling where you just sort of let yourself sink down and relax and you're completely trusting something else to kind of hold you up in the water. Rapah, that's what that is. If, you, if you've been on your feet all day scooping ice cream at Blake's Ice Cream Shop and you're tired and you're exhausted and you come home and you, and you sink down on that couch, it's the first time you've sat down in hours and you, like, you let your shoulders relax and you just, ah, you just sink down and you let that couch support the fullness of your weight. Rapah, that's what it means to be still. It's, it's that sense of complete and total just to sink down and to let yourself drop completely into something else that's supporting you. Now, if I could, let, let's bring that into a relational context, okay? Uh, if you think about rapah, what does it mean to be still in a relational context? Um, have you ever noticed when you're talking with somebody that you don't know very well, somebody who maybe, you know, you've just met or you don't have like a lot of history with, have you ever noticed the silence feels awkward? You've noticed this, haven't you? But whenever you get to this point in the conversation, there are natural lulls in the conversation. It's like quiet. If you don't know the person very well, if there's not like a long history, you kind of, you feel like you've got to fill up the space. Like, oh man, I, I should ask a question right now. You feel that awkward silence and the other person feels it as well. And so you're always trying to fill up the space. You always have something to say or you have a question to ask or something because you can't just be quiet. But if you see people who have been married for years and years, my wife and I, uh, Carrie, we'll, we'll, we will have been married for 23 years next month, and we go on walks pretty much every day. We just go on walks together. It's just a great way to talk. Uh, you're not like facing each other. You're kind of walking side by side. It just, it's a great way to talk and have conversation. It's also a great way to escape four boys in your house. And uh, so we'll go on walks, and there are, there are moments where we'll just be walking, and uh, I'll just suddenly notice like, oh, nobody said anything for like the last several minutes on this walk. But it wasn't awkward. Or, or siblings that grew up together. My brother is coming to visit tomorrow. I grew up with my brother. There are moments where my brother and I, we can just be quiet around each other. And there's no, it doesn't feel like we need to fill up the space. Think about, think about the relationships in your life where you feel the most secure. Where you feel safe. Where you know you could just say anything and you're still going to be loved. Do you even notice silence anymore? <laughs> Do you even notice where it, when it's silent? That is rapah. That's what God wants to have with us. 
He says, be still, be quiet in my presence and just know who I am. Know that I'm God. Know, where, know that I've secured your future. Know that I've paid the price. I'm the one who's set things in motion. I'm the one who's all-powerful, not you. Be still. Rapa. God wants that kind of relationship with us, that kind of, uh, that kind of relationship where we can just come into his presence and there's nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing for us to prove. We can just be in his presence. Now, it doesn't mean you can't ask for things, or you don't, but it's, you don't go into the presence of God just to ask for things. You go in order to just be still, so intimately connected to him, so confident in what he's done that you don't feel, feel like you need to fill up the space with all this conversation. You can just be still and know that he's God. That's what this verse is talking about. Do you have that kind of stillness? Do you have that kind of peace? Do you have that kind of rest in the presence of God? That's what God wants for us to be able to experience when we come into his presence. So the question then that remains is, why is this so hard? <laughs> right? Everything I've been talking about, it's like, yeah, that sounds great. I can't do that. Why is this so hard for us to do? In America in particular, as, as Westerners in particular, why, why is this such a hard thing for us to do? And what it gets to is for us as, uh, you know, living in the time and the culture that we live in, uh, we brag about multitasking, right? Have you ever met those people that brag about multitasking? Like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a multitasker. I just, I get a lot of stuff done at once. Uh, I work with some multitaskers. It annoys me when they brag about being multitaskers. And the reason is because I'm attention deficit. I've been medicated multiple times. I'm not medicated right now, in case you couldn't tell, but I, uh, <laughs> uh, I've been medicated at many points for seasons of my life just so I can task. You know, because most of the time I'm not even tasking. I'm just sort of like, I'll start to do one thing and then I'll like, oh, squirrel. And then I'm over here. And then it's kind of like, oh, yeah, there, there's something I was supposed to do over here. And I come back. That's like the story of my life. But we value multitasking. Like we, we've created, you know, we've created devices and inventions to help us make sure that at any given point in time, we're never just doing one thing. We are hardly ever in our lives or in our worlds just doing one thing at a time, even while we're driving, right? You've been behind that person on 131, right? Where they're like swerving in and out of the lane and you're like, what? I'm going to get around this person. So you get around them and you go by and you look and they're literally just driving like this on 131. You've seen those people. And if, and if you've never seen someone doing that, it's because you're the one. You're doing it. Look up from the phone. You're going to see other people are doing that. We're hard, we are hardly ever doing one thing at a time, even when we go to the bathroom now because of these devices. Ew. It's true. That, that's the culture. We, we've, we've kind of put our value in our ability to accomplish, to check the boxes, to get as much done as possible. And what God asks for us to do is to come into his presence and be still. To sink down, to rapa, to allow yourself to just be. For centuries, the early church fathers, if you go back, uh, they, they write and they talk and all about solitude and silence. Silence, solitude and silence were uh, a spiritual disciplines that the early church fathers talked about and talked about and talked about. You almost couldn't be a Christian unless you were practicing solitude and silence. Much of it comes from the life of Jesus where in the Gospels we're told again and again and again that Jesus went out into solitary places to be with his father. Some translations say lonely places. He went to lonely places to be with his father. 
in our culture, in our world today, we've almost completely dropped solitude and silence from the spiritual discipline list. Like, we don't even talk about that anymore. Like, solitude and silence, what's that? We don't need that. We don't talk about that anymore. We're, we talk about being connected all the time and being online all the time. But there's something that we gain only when we can kind of dive into the moments of solitude and silence. In 2016, I was uh, blessed by our leadership team here at Frontline with a three-month sabbatical. Um, and so I, I had three months where I, I was kind of taking some time off to study, read, pray, spend time with my family, spend time with the Lord. And so um, I, I had a friend and a mentor who challenged me to go to a monastery during those three months and participate in a silent retreat. Um, this, I, I've had some friends do that. I've wanted to do it for a, a number of years. And so in 2016, I was like, this is the perfect time. I'm on this sabbatical. And so what I did is I went to the Abbey of Gethsemane. It's a monastery in Kentucky. It's run by Trappist monks. Like they actually live there. This is their life. They devoted their entire lives to this. And um, you can go there. I connected with them and you can go to the monastery. You go ahead. You can kind of show uh, the actual monastery. This is where I stayed for a straight week and complete silence. And it's one of those kind of things, you get there, and the only time the monks talk to you, the brothers will talk to you when you first get there to kind of give you like an orientation of what you're going to experience for the week, and they, they literally don't talk to you for the rest of the time. They have this basket when you walk in. They don't make you do it. Like, they don't, like, take your phone from you, but they highly recommend put your phone in this basket. And so I put my phone in this basket, and then they took it, and they put it behind a door, and they shut the door. Here's what I thought was going to happen. I went in and committed to this silent retreat. And uh, I went and I thought, you know what? The first two days are going to be amazing. I'm a father of four boys. I'm a pastor. I'm always talking to people. People are always talking to me. I'm always trying to listen. And for a person with attention deficit, it's like work. I try to attend as much as I can to listen to people. I thought these first two days are going to be amazing. I can just shut up. I can be quiet. I can be at rest. It's going to be awesome. But then what I thought to myself is as the days go on, as we get closer to the end of that week of that silent retreat, that's what's going to be hard. I'm going to have a hard time staying silent for that long. I was totally wrong. <laughs> the exact opposite is actually what happened. I got there. I put my phone in the basket. I went in. The first two days were absolute agony. It's like my, my internal RPMs were just firing. I was fidgety. I was nervous. I couldn't sit still. I didn't know what to do with myself. My, my, my mind was just racing. I, I got to the end of the second day, and I almost quit. I literally almost Ran, I wanted to like bust open that door, grab my phone out of the basket, and like run out of there screaming at the top of my lungs. It was all I could do to stay there. It was so miserable for two straight days. But then something happened the third day. It's like you, I just submerged into this place with my father. I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's weird. You won't know what it feels like unless you try something like this. But it's like I just went down into this place where I just had this overwhelming sense of peace. And the presence of God just came so near and so close. And I was having all these thoughts. In fact, I journaled. I just filled up like an entire journal with just thoughts that were coming to me of things I just felt like God was speaking. Things I've shared in sermons over this last year in 2021, I've got, you know, have come from even just that week and some of those things I wrote in, those, in that journal. It was unbelievable. God's presence just seemed so near, and I, I, I was experiencing such a peace that what actually happened is by the time I got to the very end of the week and it was time for me to go, they put the basket out, and it was time for me to pick up my phone and leave the monastery. I didn't want to do it. 
I didn't want to leave. I literally had this like, oh, I got I to gotta go back to all the noise of my life. There was something so rich and so incredible about the peace I was experiencing, I didn't want to leave. Here's why I tell you that. When we actually try to practice in our society today, when we actually try to practice being still before God, coming into his presence and being still and knowing that he is God, most of us give up almost immediately. And the reason we give up immediately is because it's always hardest at first. Because what happens is the monsters come out first. Seriously, all the monsters come out first. If you try, even now, like if I go into the presence of God and I just try to be still and just be in his presence and let him just uh, speak to me and let him just be there, what happens is all the anxieties suddenly just pop up. All the things in my mind just sort of pop up to the surface first. Those are the things that emerge first. All the things I, I'm worried about or that might happen, all the things I need to surrender to him. Sometimes it's like an area of sin in my life will just like pop to the surface, an area that I'm kind of trying to go, I don't see you, I don't see that, I don't know what that is, Right? Other times, maybe it's some area of guidance. I need some area, something to happen in my life. I'm looking, I'm seeking for some guidance. Those are the things that pop up first. But here's what I'm telling you. If you are willing to sit in that and the uncomfortable feeling of that and surrender those things to God, he will begin to enter in and give you his peace. Philippians 4 talks about the peace of God that passes all understanding. He can do that. He will do that for us when we just sit and we wait on him. When we are willing to slow down and be still before God, he says, I want you to come. I want you to be still before me, and that's when I'm going to start working in your life. If we're willing to be still, he'll be willing to start moving and start working in our lives. But if we're not willing to still ourselves and be still before him, if we're just still running like the hamster in the wheel, I think he kind of says, okay, good luck with that. I can wait. I've got eternity. I can wait. But when we're willing to be still, he starts moving. So I thought about how to end this sermon, and I thought, you know, we could talk about this, this psalm. We could talk about being still and knowing that he's God, or we could actually do it. And so if you're here in the room with us right now, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to, we're just going to take a couple minutes and we're going to practice being still. I've asked the band not to play, not to make any noise. They're going to participate in this with us on the stage. And so uh, if you're watching online right now with us, you might be multitasking right now, actually. Maybe you're doing two or three other things while you're listening to this sermon. I would invite you to participate in this with us, whatever that means, whatever it looks like for you to set everything down for a minute and just sit down and focus and be still. And we're just going to take a couple minutes, right, baby steps. I mean, for us, a couple minutes is going to feel like an eternity in our world and our culture. But there's just going to be a few scriptures that are going to pop up on the screen. All I want you to do is I just want you to be still, pay attention to what's going on inside of you. And then these scriptures, as they appear on the screen, meditate on them and just kind of ask, Lord, which one of these is for me today? Which one of these do I need to hear? Which one do I need to memorize which one do I need to take out of this place with me? And just be still before him and let him do whatever he wants to do. Let him say to you, this is a time for you to just connect with the Lord and let him say whatever he wants to say to you. So I'm not going to pray yet, but let's just enter in right now. Let's just begin to do this. Let's be still before him and let him speak.